Chapter 15 of the Pickwick Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. This recording by Patty Brugman. Patty Brugman. Chapter 15 In which is given a faithful portraiture of two distinguished persons and an accurate description of a public breakfast in their house and grounds which public breakfast leads to the recognition of an old acquaintance and the commencement of another chapter. Mr. Pickwick's conscience had been somewhat reproaching him for his recent neglect of his friends at the Peacock, and he was just on the point of walking forth in quest of them on the third morning after the election had terminated, when his faithful valet put into his hand a card on which was engraved the following inscription. Mrs. Leo Hunter, the Den, Eatonswill. A parson's awaitin', said Sam, epigrammatically. Does the person want me, Sam? inquired Mr. Pickwick. He wants you particular, and no one else'll do, as the devil's private secretary said, Veni Vegetave, Dr. Faustus, replied Mr. Weller. He, is it a gentleman, said Mr. Pickwick? A wary imitation o' one, if it ain't replied Mr. Weller. "'But this is a lady's card,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'Given me by a gentleman howsoever,' replied Sam. "'And he's a-waitin' in the drawing-room, and he'd rather wait all day than not see you.' Mr. Pickwick, on hearing this determination, descended to the drawing-room, where sat a grave man, who started up on his entrance and said with an air of profound respect, "'Mr. Pickwick, I presume?' "'The same.' "'Allow me, sir, the honour of grasping your hand. "'Permit me, sir, to shake it,' said the grave man. "'Certainly,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'The stranger shook the extended hand and then continued. "'We have heard of your fame, sir. "'The noise of your antiquarian discussion has reached the ears of Mrs. Leo Hunter, "'my wife, sir. "'I am Mr. Leo Hunter.' "'The stranger paused as if he expected that Mr. Pickwick would be overcome by the disclosure.' but seeing that he remained perfectly calm, proceeded. My wife, sir, Mrs. Leo Hunter, is proud to number among her acquaintance of all those who have rendered themselves celebrated by their works and talents. Permit me, sir, to place in a conspicuous part of the list of the name of Mr. Pickwick and the brother members of that club that derives its name from him. "'I shall be extremely happy to make the acquaintance of such a lady, sir,' replied Mr. Pickwick. "'You shall make it, sir,' said the grave man. "'Tomorrow morning, sir, we give a public breakfast, a fête chambre, "'to a great number of those who have rendered themselves celebrated by their works and talents. "'Permit Mrs. Leo Hunter, sir, to have the gratification of seeing you at the den.' "'With great pleasure,' replied Mr. Pickwick. "'Mrs. Leo Hunter has many of these breakfasts, sir,' resumed the new acquaintance. "'Feasts of reason, sir, and flows of soul. "'As somebody who wrote a sonnet to Mrs. Leo Hunter on her breakfasts, "'feelingly and originally observed.' "'Was he celebrated for his works and talents?' inquired Mr. Pickwick. "'He was, sir,' replied the grave man. "'All Mrs. Leo Hunter's acquaintances are. 
It is her ambition, sir, to have no other acquaintance. It is a very noble ambition, said Mr. Pickwick. When I inform Mrs. Leo Hunter that that remark fell from your lips, sir, she will indeed be proud, said the grave man. You have a gentleman in your train who has produced some beautiful little poems, I think, sir. My friend Mr. Snodgrass has a great taste for poetry, replied Mr. Pickwick. So has Mrs. Leo Hunter, sir. She dotes on poetry, sir. She adores it. I may say that her whole soul and mind are wound up and intertwined with it. She has produced some delightful pieces herself. You may have met with her ode to an expiring frog, sir. I don't think I have, said Mr. Pickwick. You astonish me, sir, said Mr. Leo Hunter. It created an immense sensation. It was signed with an L and eight stars and appeared originally in a ladies' magazine. It commenced, Can I view thee panting, lying, on thy stomach without sighing? Can I, unmoved, see thee dying, on a log, expiring frog? Beautiful, said Mr. Pickwick. Fine, said Mr. Leo Hunter. So simple. Very, said Mr. Pickwick. The next verse is still more touching. Shall I repeat it? If you please, said Mr. Pickwick. It runs thus, said the grave man, still more gravely. Say have fiends in shape of boys, with wild halloo and brutal noise, hunted thee with marshy joys, with a dog, expiring frog. Finally expressed, said Mr. Pickwick. All points, sir, said Mr. Leo Hunter. But you shall hear Mrs. Leo Hunter repeat it. She can do it justice, sir. She will repeat it in character, sir, to-morrow morning. In character? As Minerva. But I forgot. It's a fancy dress breakfast. Dear me, said Mr. Pickwick, glancing at his own figure. I can't possibly. Can't, sir, can't, exclaimed Mr. Leo Hunter. Solomon Lucas, the Jew in High Street, has thousands of fancy dresses. Consider, sir, how many appropriate characters are open for your selection. Plato, Zeno, Epicurus, Pythagoras, all founders of clubs. I know that, said Mr. Pickwick, but as I cannot put myself in competition with those great men, I cannot presume to wear their dresses. The grave man considered deeply for a few seconds, and then said, On reflection, sir, I don't know whether it would not afford Mrs. Leo Hunter greater pleasure if her guests saw a gentleman of your celebrity in his own costume, rather than in an assumed one. I may venture to promise an exception in your case, sir. Yes, I am quite certain that on behalf of Mrs. Leo Hunter I may venture to do so. In that case, said Mr. Pickwick, I shall have great pleasure in coming. But I waste your time, sir, said the grave man, as if suddenly recollecting himself. I know its value, sir. I will not detain you. I may tell Mrs. Leo Hunter, then, that she may confidently expect you and your distinguished friends. Good morning, sir. 
I am proud to have beheld so eminent a personage. Not a step, sir, not a word. And without giving Mr. Pickwick time to offer remonstrance or denial, Mr. Leo Hunter stalked gravely away. Mr. Pickwick took up his hat and repaired to the peacock, but Mr. Winkle had conveyed the intelligence of the fancy ball there before him. Mrs. Potts going, were the first word with which he saluted his leader. Is she, said Mr. Pickwick. As Apollo, replied Mr. Winkle. Only Pot objects to the tunic. Is he right? Is he quite right? said Mr. Pickwick. Yes, so she's going to wear a white satin gown with gold spangles. They'll hardly know what she's meant for, will they? inquired Mr. Snodgrass. Of course they will, replied Mr. Winkle indignantly. They'll see her liar, won't they? True, I forgot that, said Mr. Snodgrass. I shall go as a bandit, interposed Mr. Tupman. What, said Mr. Pickwick, with a sudden start, as a bandit, repeated Mr. Tupman mildly. You don't mean to say, said Mr. Pickwick, gazing with solemn sternness at his friend, you don't mean to say, Mr. Tupman, that it is your intention to put yourself into a green velvet jacket with a two-inch tail? Such is my intention, sir, replied Mr. Tupman warmly. And why not, sir? Because, sir, said Mr. Pickwick, considerably excited, because you are too old, sir. Too old, exclaimed Mr. Tupman. And if any further ground of objection be wanting, continued Mr. Pickwick, you are too fat, sir. Sir, said Mr. Tupman, his face suffused with crimson glow, this is an insult. Sir, replied Mr. Pickwick in the same tone, it is not half the insult to you that your appearance in my presence in a green velvet jacket with a two-inch tail would be to me. Sir, said Mr. Tupman, you're a fellow. Sir, said Mr. Pickwick, you're another. Mr. Tupman advanced a step or two and glared at Mr. Pickwick. Mr. Pickwick returned the glare, concentrated into a focus by means of his spectacles, and breathed a bold defiance. Mr. Snodgrass and Mr. Winkle looked on, petrified at beholding such a scene between two such men. Sir, said Mr. Tupman, after a short pause, speaking in a low, deep voice, you have called me old. I have, said Mr. Pickwick, and fat. I reiterate the charge, and a fellow. So you are. There was a fearful pause. My attachment to your person, sir, said Mr. Tupman, speaking in a voice tremulous with emotion, and tucking up his wristbands meanwhile, is a great, very great, but upon that person I must take summary vengeance. Come on, sir, replied Mr. Pickwick, stimulated by the exciting nature of the dialogue, the heroic man actually threw himself into a parallactic attitude confidently supposed by the two bystanders to have been intended as a posture of defense. What? exclaimed Mr. Snodgrass, suddenly recovering the power of speech of which intense astonishment had previously bereft him, and rushing between the two, at an imminent hazard of receiving an application on the temple from each. What? Mr. Pickwick, with the eyes of the world upon you? Mr. Tupman, who in common with us all, derives a luster from his undying name. For shame, gentlemen, for shame! 
the unwanted lines which momentary passion had ruled in mr pickwick's clear and open brow gradually melted away as his young friend spoke like the marks of a black lead pencil beneath the softening influence of india rubber his countenance had resumed its usual benign expression ere he concluded i have been hasty said mr pickwick very hasty tupman your hand the dark shadow passed from Mr. Tupman's face as he warmly grasped the hand of his friend. "'I have been hasty, too,' he said. "'No, no,' interrupted Mr. Pickwick. "'The fault was mine. You will wear the green velvet jacket.' "'No, no,' replied Mr. Tupman. "'To oblige me, you will,' resumed Mr. Pickwick. "'Well, well, I will,' said Mr. Tupman. It was accordingly settled that Mr. Tupman— Mr. Winkle and Mr. Snodgrass should all wear fancy dresses. Thus Mr. Pickwick was led by the very warmth of his own good feelings to give his consent to a proceeding from which his better judgment would have recoiled. A more striking illustration of his amiable character could hardly have been conceived, even if the events recorded in these pages had been wholly imaginary. Mr. Leo Hunter had not exaggerated the resources of Mr. Solomon Lucas, his wardrobe was extensive, very extensive, not strictly classical, perhaps, nor quite new, nor did it contain any one garment made precisely after the fashion of any age or time, but everything was more or less spangled. And what can be prettier than spangles? It may be objected that they are not adapted to the daylight, but everybody knows that they would glitter if there were lamps. And nothing can be clearer than that if people give fancy balls in the daytime, and the dresses do not show quite as well as they would by night, the fault lies solely with the people who give the fancy balls, and is in no wise chargeable to the spangles. Such was the convincing reasoning of Mr. Solomon Lucas, and influenced by such arguments as Mr. Tupman, Mr. Winkle, and Mr. Snodgrass engaged to array themselves in costumes which his taste and experience induced him to recommend as admirably suited to the occasion. A carriage was hired from the town arms for the accommodation of the Pickwickians, and a chariot was ordered from the same repository for the purpose of conveying Mr. and Mrs. Pott to Mrs. Leo Hunter's grounds, which Mr. Pott, as a delicate acknowledgment of having received an invitation, had already confidently predicted in the Eatonsville Gazette, would present a scene of varied and delicious enchantment a bewildering corsication of beauty and talent, a lavish and prodigal display of hospitality, above all, a degree of splendor softened by the most exquisite taste, and adornment refined with perfect harmony, and the chastest good-keeping, compared with which the fabled and gorgeousness of the eastern fairyland itself would appear to be clothed in as many dark and murky colors as must be the mind of the splenetic and unmanly being who could presume to taint with the venom of his envy the preparations making by the virtuous and highly distinguished lady at whose shine this humble tribute of admiration was offered this last was a piece of biting sarcasm against the independent who in consequence of not having been invited at all had been through four numbers, affecting to sneer at the whole affair, in his very largest type with all the adjectives in capital letters. The morning came, 
It was a pleasant sight to behold, Mr. Tupman in full brigand's costume, with a very tight jacket, sitting like a pincushion over his back and shoulders, the upper portion of his legs encased in the velvet shorts, the lower part thereof swathed in complicated bandages, to which all brigands are peculiarly attached. It was pleasing to see his open and ingenuous countenance, well mustachioed and corked, looking at from an open shirt collar, and to contemplate the sugar-loaf hat, decorated with ribbons of all colours, which he was compelled to carry on his knee, inasmuch as no known conveyance with the top to it would admit of any man's carrying it between his head and the roof. Equally humorous and agreeable was the appearance of Mr. Snodgrass, in blue satin trunks and cloak, white silk tights and shoes, and Grecian helmet which everybody knows, and if they do not, Mr. Salmon Lucas did, to have been the regular, authentic, everyday costume of a troubadour from the earliest ages down to the time of their final disappearance from the face of the earth. All this was pleasant, but this was as nothing compared with the shouting of the populace when the carriage drew up behind Mr. Potts' chariot, which chariot itself drew up at Mr. Potts' door, which door itself opened and displayed the great pot, accoutred as a Russian officer of justice, with the tremendous knot in his hand, tastefully typical of the stern and mighty power of the Eatanswill Gazette, and the fearful lashings it bestowed upon public offenders. "'Bravo!' shouted Mr. Tupman and Mr. Snodgrass from the passage when they beheld the walking allegory. "'Bravo!' Mr. Pickwick was heard to exclaim from the passage. "'Ho, ho! Roar, Pot!' shouted the populace. Amid these salutations, Mr. Pot, smiling with that kind of bland dignity which sufficiently testified that he felt his power and knew how to exert it, got into the chariot. Then there emerged from the house Mrs. Potts, who would have looked very like Apollo if she hadn't had a gown on, conducted by Mr. Winkle, who in his light red coat could not possibly have been mistaken for anything but a sportsman if he had not borne an equal resemblance to a general postman. Last of all came Mr. Pickwick, whom the boys applauded as loud as anybody, probably under the impression that his tights and gaiters were some remnants of the dark ages. And then the two vehicles proceeded toward Mrs. Leo Hunter's, Mr. Weller, who was to assist in waiting, being stationed at the box of that in which his master was seated. Every one of the men, women, boys, girls, and babies, who were assembled to see the visitors in their fancy dresses, screamed with delight and ecstasy when Mr. Pickwick, with the brigand on one arm and the troubadour on the other, walked solemnly up the entrance. Never were such shouts heard as those which greeted Mr. Tupman's efforts to fix the sugar-loaf hat on his head by way of entering the garden in style. The preparations were on the most delightful scale, fully realizing the prophetic pot's anticipation about the gorgeousness of eastern fairyland, and at once affording a sufficient contradiction to the malignant statements of the reptile independent. The grounds were more than an acre and a quarter in extent, and they were filled with people. Never was such a blaze of beauty and fashion and literature. There was the young lady who did the poetry in the Eatonsville Gazette, 
and the garb of a sultana, leaning upon the arm of a gentleman who did the review department, and who was appropriately habited in a field marshal's uniform, the boots excepted. There were hosts of these geniuses, and any reasonable person would have thought it an honour to meet them. But more than these were the half-dozen lions from London, authors, real authors, who had written whole books and printed them afterwards, and here you might see them walking about like ordinary men, smiling and talking, ay, and talking pretty considerable nonsense, too, no doubt with the in benign intention of rendering themselves intelligible to the common people about them. Moreover, there was a band of music in pasteboard caps, four something in singers in the costume of their country, and a dozen hired waiters in the costume of their country, and very dirty costume, too. And above all, there was Mrs. Leo Hunter, in the character of Minerva, receiving the company and overflowing with pride and gratification at the notion of having called such distinguished individuals together. "'Mr. Pickwick, ma'am,' said a servant, as that gentleman approached the presiding goddess, with his hat in his hand and the brigand and troubadour on either arm. "'What? Where?' exclaimed Mrs. Leo Hunter, starting up in an affected rapture of surprise. "'Here,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'Is it possible that I have really the gratification of beholding Mr. Pickwick himself?' ejaculated Mrs. Leo Hunter. "'No other, ma'am,' replied Mr. Pickwick, bowing very low. "'Permit me to introduce my friends. "'Mr. Tupman, Mr. Winkle, Mr. Snodgrass, "'to the authoress of The Expiring Frog.' Very few people but those who have tried to know what a difficult process it is to bow in green velvet smalls in a tight jacket and high-crowned hat, or in blue satin trunks and white silks, or knee cords and top boots that were never made for the wearer and have been fixed upon him without the remotest reference to the comparative dimensions of himself and the suit. Never were such distortions as Mr. Tupman's frame underwent in his efforts to appear easy and graceful. Never was such ingenious posturing as his fancy-dressed friends exhibited. "'Mr. Pickwick,' said Mrs. Leo Hunter, "'I must make you promise not to stir from my side the whole day. There are hundreds of people here that I must positively introduce you to.' "'You are very kind, ma'am,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'In the first place, here are my little girls. "'I had almost forgotten them,' said Minerva, "'carelessly pointing toward a couple of full-grown young ladies, "'of whom one might be about twenty "'and the other a year or two older, "'and who were dressed in very juvenile costumes, "'whether to make them look young or their mamma look younger. "'Mr. Pickwick does not distinctly inform us.' "'They are very beautiful,' said Mr. Pickwick, "'as the juveniles turned away after being presented.' "'They are very like their mamma, sir,' said Mr. Pott majestically. "'Oh, you naughty man!' exclaimed Mrs. Leo Hunter, playfully tapping the editor's arm with her fan. "'Minerva with a fan!' "'Why now, my dear Mrs. Hunter,' said Mr. Pott, who was trumpeter in ordinary at the den, "'you know that when your picture was in the exhibition of the Royal Academy last year, "'everybody inquired whether it was intended for you or your youngest daughter.' "'for you were so much alike that there was no telling the difference between you. "'Well, 
"'If they did, why need you repeat it before strangers?' said Mrs. Leo Hunter, bestowing another tap on the slumbering lion of the Eatonswell Gazette. "'Count! Count!' screamed Mrs. Leo Hunter to a well-whiskered individual in a foreign uniform who was passing by. "'Ah, uh, you want me?' said the Count, turning back. "'I want to introduce two very clever people to each other,' said Mrs. Leo Hunter. "'Mr. Pickwick, I have great pleasure in introducing you to Count Smalltalk,' she added in a hurried whisper to Mr. Pickwick, "'the famous foreigner, gathering materials for his great work on England. Um, "'Count Smalltalk, Mr. Pickwick.' Mr. Pickwick saluted the Count with all the reverence due to so great a man, and the Count drew forth a set of tablets. "'What say you, Mrs. Hunt?' inquired the Count, smiling graciously on the gratified Mrs. Leo Hunter. Pigvig or Pigvig? What you call lawyer, eh? I see that it is Bigvig. And the Count was proceeding to enter Mr. Pickwick in his tablets as a gentleman of the long robe, who derived his name from the profession to which he belonged when Mrs. Leo interposed. No, no, Count, said the lady. Pick "'Aye, I see,' replied the Count. "'Peak, Christian name, Weeks, surname. "'Good, very good. Peak, Weeks. "'How do you do, Weeks?' "'Well, quite well. I thank you,' replied Mr. Pickwick. "'With all his usual affability, have you been long in England?' "'Very long, very long time. Fortnight more.' "'Do you stay here long?' "'One week. "'You will have enough to do,' said Mr. Pickwick, smiling, "'to gather all the materials you want in that time.' "'Ah, oh, they are gathered,' said the Count. "'Indeed,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'They are here,' added the Count, tapping his forehead significantly. "'Large book at home, full of notes. "'Music, picture, science, poetry, politic, all things.' "'The word politics, sir,' said Mr. Pickwick, "'comprises in itself.' A difficult study of no inconsiderable magnitude. All, said the Count, drawing out the tablets again. Very good. Fine words to begin a chapter. Chapter 47. Politics. The word politic surprises by himself. And down went Mr. Pickwick's remark in Count Smoltork's tablets, with such variations and additions as the Count's exuberance fancy suggested of his imperfect knowledge of the language occasioned. Count, said Mrs. Leo Hunter. Mrs. Hunt, replied the Count. This is Mr. Snodgrass, a friend of Mr. Pickwick's, and a poet. Stop, exclaimed the Count, bringing out the tablets once more. Ed Poetry, chapter literary friends, name Snowgrass, very good. Introduced to Snowgrass, great poet, friend of by Mrs. Hunter, which wrote other sweet poem. What is the name? Fog. Perspiring fog. Very good, very good indeed. And the Count put up his tablets, and with sundry bows and acknowledgments walked away, thoroughly satisfied that he had made the most important and valuable addition to his stock of information. Wonderful man, Count Smoltork, said Mrs. Leo Hunter. Sound philosopher, said Mr. Pott. Clear-headed, strong-minded person, added Mr. Snodgrass. 
A chorus of bystanders took up the shout of Count Smoltork's praise, shook their heads sagely, and unanimously cried, Very! As the enthusiasm in Count Smoltork's favour ran very high, his praises might have been sung until the end of the festivities if the four-something-and-singers had not ranged themselves in front of a small apple-tree to look picturesque, and commenced singing their national songs, which appeared by no means difficult of execution, inasmuch as the grand secret seemed to be that three of the something-and-singers should grunt while the fourth howled. This interesting performance, having concluded amidst the loud plaudits of the whole company, a boy forthwith proceeding to entangle himself with the rails of a chair, and to jump over it, and crawl under it, and fall down with it, and do everything but sit upon it, and then to make a cravat of his legs and tie them round his neck, and then to illustrate the ease with which a human being can be made to look like a magnified toad, all which feats yielded high delight and satisfaction to the assembled spectators, after which the voice of Mrs. Potts was heard to chirp faintly forth something which courtesy interrupted into a song, which was all very classical and strictly in character, because Apollo was himself a composer, and composers can very seldom sing their own music or anybody else's either. This was succeeded by Mrs. Leo Hunter's recitation of her far-famed Ode to an Expiring Frog which was encored once, and would have been encored twice, if the major part of the guests, who thought it was high time to get something to eat, had not said that it was perfectly shameful to take advantage of Mrs. Leo Hunter's good nature. So, although Mrs. Leo Hunter professed her perfect willingness to recite the ode again, her kind and considerate friends wouldn't hear of it on any account, and the refreshment room being thrown open, all the people who had ever been there before scrambled in with all possible dispatch, Mrs. Leo Hunter's usual course of proceeding being to issue cards for a hundred and breakfast for fifty, or in other words to feed only the very particular lions and let the smallest animals take care of themselves. "'Where is Mr. Pott?' said Mrs. Leo Hunter, as she placed the aforesaid lions around her. "'Here I am.' said the editor, from the remotest end of the room, far beyond all hope of food, unless something was done for him by the hostess. "'Won't you come up here?' "'Oh, pray don't mind him,' said Mrs. Pott, in a most obliging voice. "'You'll give yourself a great deal of unnecessary trouble, Mrs. Hunter. You'll do very well there, won't you, dear?' "'Certainly, love,' replied the unhappy Pott, with a grim smile. "'Alas for the knot!' The nervous arm that wielded with such gigantic force in public characters was paralyzed beneath the glance of the imperious Mrs. Pott. Mrs. Leo Hunter looked around her in triumph. Count Smoltork was busily engaged in taking notes of the contents of the dishes. Mr. Topman was doing the honors of the lobster salad to several lionesses with a degree of grace which no brigand ever exhibited before. Mr. Snodgrass, having cut out the young gentleman who cut up the books for the Eatonswill Gazette, was engaged in an impassioned argument with the young lady who did the poetry, and Mr. Pickwick was making himself universally agreeable. 
Nothing seemed wanting to render the select circle complete when Mrs. Leo Hunter, whose department on these occasions was to stand about in doorways and talk to the less important people, suddenly called out, "'My dear, here's Mr. Charles Fitzmarshall.' "'Oh, dear,' said Mrs. Leo Hunter, "'how anxiously I have been expecting him. Pray make room to let Mr. Fitzmarshall pass.' "'Tell Mr. Fitzmarshall, my dear, to come up to me directly, "'to be scolded for coming so late.' "'Coming, my dear ma'am,' cried a voice, as quick as I can. "'Crowds of people, full room, hard work, very.' "'Mr. Pickwick's knife and fork fell from his hand. "'He stared across the table at Mr. Tupman, "'who had dropped his knife and fork, "'and was looking as if he were about to sink into the ground "'without further notice.' Ah! cried the voice, as its owner pushed his way among the last five-and-twenty Turks, officers, cavaliers, and Charles the Seconds, that remained between him and the table. Regular mangle, baker's patent, not a crease in my coat after all this squeezing. Might have got up my linens as I came along. Ha, ha, not a bad idea, that queer thing to have it mangled when it's upon one, though. Trying process, and very... With these broken words, a young man, dressed as a naval officer, made his way up to the table and presented to the astonished Pickwickians the identical form and features of Mr. Alfred Jingle. The offender had barely time to take Mrs. Leo Hunter's proffered hand when his eyes encountered the indignant orbs of Mr. Pickwick. Hello, said Jingle. Quite forgot. No directions to postillion. Give him at once back in a minute. The servant or Mr. Hunter will do it in a moment, Mr. Fitzmarshall, said Mrs. Leo Hunter. No, no, I'll do it. Shan't be long. Back in no time, replied Jingle. With these words, he disappeared among the crowd. Will you allow me to ask you, ma'am, said the excited Mr. Pickwick, rising from his seat, who that young man is and where he resides? Here's a gentleman of fortune, Mr. Pickwick, said Mrs. Leo Hunter to whom I very much want to introduce you. The Count will be delighted with him. Yes, yes, said Mr. Pickwick hastily. His residence is at present at the Angel at Bury. At Bury? At Bury St. Edmunds, not many miles from here. But dear me, Mr. Pickwick, you are not going to leave us. Surely, Mr. Pickwick, you cannot think of going so soon. But long before Mrs. Leo Hunter had finished speaking, Mr. Pickwick had plunged through the throng and reached the garden, whither he was shortly afterward joined by Mr. Tupman, who had followed his friend closely. "'It's of no use,' said Mr. Tupman. "'He has gone.' "'I know it,' said Mr. Pickwick, "'and I will follow him.' "'Follow him? Where?' inquired Mr. Tupman. "'To the angel at Bury,' replied Mr. Pickwick, speaking very quickly." How do we know whom he is deceiving there? He deceived a worthy man once, and we were the innocent cause. He shall not do it again if I can help it. I'll expose him. Where's my servant? Here you are, said Mr. Weller, emerging from a sequestered spot where he had been engaged in discussing a bottle of Madeira, which he had abstracted from the breakfast table an hour or two before. Here's your servant, sir, proud of the title as the living skeleton said when they showed him. "'Follow me instantly,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'Tupman, if I stay at Bury, you can join me there when I write. Till then, good-bye.' 
Remonstrances were useless. Mr. Pickwick was roused, and his mind was made up. Mr. Tupman returned to his companions, and in another hour had drowned all his present recollections of Mr. Alfred Jingle, or Mr. Charles Fitzmarshall, in an exhilarating quadrille and a bottle of champagne. By that time Mr. Pickwick and Sam Weller, perched on the outside of a stagecoach, were every succeeding minute placing a less and less distance between themselves and the good old town of Bury St. Edmunds. End of chapter 15